2: Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. World Begins' unprecedented third attempt on 2020. That wisecrack on Twitter as the clock struck midnight on New Year's Eve captured the global mood rather well, I thought. We're stepping nervously into January, wondering whether this might be the year things finally get back to normal trying to ignore the fact that nearly everyone we know either just recovered from COVID or recently had a positive test. Also, that many of us in the US and Europe are once again working from home. So the first question on our agenda must be, how is the latest wave of Omicron infection affecting the global economy so far? And especially what's happening to that great snarl up in global supply chains that so dominated this podcast in 2021. We have the absolute latest on that in a minute from our supply chain czar, Brendan Murray. But even if Covid starts to fade from view, we know the pandemic will probably change some parts of the global economy for good, including maybe Mexico, which looks a lot more attractive to global manufacturers now than it did before Covid. Thomas Black has a report from Ciudad Juarez, just south of the US border, later on. We also have the sad tale of fishermen and divers on the island of Iki off the coast of Nagasaki, whose way of life is already threatened by climate change but may now also be hard hit by the Japanese government's efforts to cut the country's reliance on fossil fuels. I swim here every day, but the sea is dead now at the bottom of the sea. It really feels like death not our usual fare perhaps but a parable of our times that story coming up later from our japan economy reporter yoshiaki nohara but first let's have that update from our supply chain guru brendan murray this omicron spread so dramatically in the last few weeks of 2021 i guess many of us felt we might be coming back from our Christmas holidays and find the world ground to a halt again. It's early days, but what is the early evidence on the impact that the Omicron wave is having?
3: Well, the early evidence is showing that the, the the global economy and supply chains in particular are sort of withstanding the initial uh, outbreaks, whether they be in France or the UK or the US. Uh, you know a lot of uh, companies have built in uh, resilience plans to deal with workers as they as they call in sick. But still there are a number of, of, of hotspots where all of these cases are are affecting the ability of, of companies to, to, to have enough workers to move goods through the pipeline that they need to move through. So we were seeing some signs that Uh, You know, supply chains were starting to repair themselves toward the end of the year after a very disruptive year. Uh, But then Omicron, you know, came, you know, with a vengeance in December and kind of slowed whatever progress we were seeing. So we're entering 2022 with, uh, you know, even more question marks about the health of uh, the global trade and whether goods can continue to move as as well as they have or as poorly as they have in a lot of cases uh, for the past two years.
2: And I guess the, the latest news has been that, that even a very small number of cases in China is causing them to have quite dramatic shutdowns um, in a number of places. Um, we we know, even if uh, we're going to hear later, that some businesses are trying to just to change that. But the, currently, they there is a lot of reliance on Chinese production. And you've got um, complete shutdowns in at least... A couple of of big cities talk of of barter in towns like Xian, where their local supply chains are are breaking down. If that is the story for for several weeks, if China starts having even a more national lockdown, I mean that's surely going to slow down this improvement in the State of supply chains.
3: Exactly, this is the real wild card this year, especially in coastal towns uh, where where ports are big employers and you know important for the movement of goods you know into China and out of China. There are you know several hundred ships you know currently waiting outside of Ningbo, uh, uh, you know one of the world's busiest ports and the trucks are slow to to come and go uh, from this port and that just backs the whole system up uh those trying to to get in to offload and then to reload and to come back to the States or to Europe. So that is really the big question is the the, the supply chains are really at the mercy of the virus and especially China, which you know kind of is the gateway to much of the world's uh, consumer goods and raw materials for that matter. So those shutdowns, the zero tolerance policy in China for, for COVID cases is really gonna be uh, the thing to watch in 2022 as to whether uh, supply chains can, uh, you know, kind of rebound or or stay as as uh, knotted and, and tangled as they are.
2: We tend to think of the impact of Omicron as being about um, hospitalizations and is it you know that the public health consequences, which obviously could be significant if enough people get COVID, particularly people who are not vaccinated, but. Um, what you're speaking to is this the, the, the sort of economic impact, which comes not so much from people in hospital, but just people being at home. And I can say in, in the UK, we're probably in the, the sort of front line of this at the moment, having been the first developed economy to see a big spike in, in infections. The worst case scenarios that the government's working with is that 25% of the workforce might be at home in a few weeks, in the next couple of weeks, which obviously if that happens, you've got some pretty important workers who are not on the border controls or not in the supermarkets or not in hospitals. Um, So it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. But you do get the sense, Brendan, that whatever happens, we're going to know uh, quite quickly because it really is spreading so fast through the economy. If you look past the next couple of months... Um, What are the sort of structural elements of the supply chain story um, that might start to fall into place over the next year? You know, people talk, for example, about just the ramping up of production of container ships and that potentially having an impact. How, How do you see those kind of more medium term forces playing out once we get through this wave?
3: We should start to see the benefits of that diversification strategy that began a, a few years ago. Actually, even before the pandemic, uh, during the U.S.-China trade war, it, it dawned on people that protectionism was was a was a was a coming uh, trend and. That tariffs could go up at any point, and so you needed to be geographically diverse. That it's not sustainable for them to be sourcing only from, uh, you know, a, a country like China. And they quickly developed uh, different suppliers in Vietnam, Malaysia, places like Mexico, Turkey, uh, Morocco. So. Later this year, perhaps maybe even next year, we should start to see the ability of companies to to get what they need when they need it, uh, as opposed to as opposed to all these delays that we're seeing now. Some of those some of those structural elements take a lot more time uh, building of. Chip factories, and you know, that take you know tens of billions of dollars and decade or more. Uh, you know, those kinds of things will take longer to come online. But the the diversification that the pandemic sort of unleashed, we should start to see some of that the the capacity on the transportation side, new ships, uh, you know, new port capacity, cranes, and and other you know trucking and, and, and th- these kinds of uh, things, the, the infrastructure spending, those are those should be medium term things that we we see fairly soon. 2023 is what a lot of the experts say will be the earliest that we'll see any new uh, container ships come into operation. So we're looking at, you know, at least six months to 12 months before we we see any real relief on the structural sides of things.
2: Well, Brett and Murray, thank you very much. And I'm especially thankful because you've given me a great link into our next item, because as... Brendan was saying that the pandemic is 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 going to leave a mark on global supply chains and also the trade wars it's not so long ago that we were talking about trade wars. It used to be that that cheap labor was all you really needed to attract global manufacturing firms and become part of their intricate supply chains, but not anymore. The pandemic has made businesses wary of basing key parts of their production process on the other side of the world, especially China. And for those based in the US, uh, the last year, they've also found it a lot more challenging to find any workers at all at any price. So all of that, it turns out, has been rather good news for a country teeming with willing workers that also happens to share a 2,000-mile border with the US. Our Dallas-based manufacturing reporter, Thomas Black,
1: tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two.
0: This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple
1: Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We have very big plans for Mexico. Mexico is a very, very
4: important market for us.
5: That's Isaac Larian. The founder and CEO of MGA Entertainment, a Los Angeles-based toy maker. You've probably seen or even bought some of the toys made by MGA. From dolls like Bratz to the iconic Little Tykes Cozy Coop. That's the bubble-shaped plastic car that toddlers can climb in and power with their own feet. So what do toys have to do with Mexico? Well, MGA now makes that Little Tykes Toy Car in Ciudad Juarez a dust-swept border city just across the Rio Grande from El Paso, Texas. The company set up the factory only a few miles from the U.S. border and in just nine months, beginning operations in November. And those big plans for Mexico that Larian just spoke about? They're part of a strategy to shorten MGA's supply chain. Last year was a wake-up call for MGA. The company makes most of its toys in China and also has a large U.S. plant in Hudson, Ohio, but both proved problematic. While the Chinese factories performed, MGA ended up with 750 shipping containers filled with millions of dollars of toys, stuck outside the port of Los Angeles and completely missing the holiday shopping season. Adding insult to injury, the expense for sending those containers from China to the U.S., had skyrocketed from $3,200 a container to an astonishing $16,000. But back in the U.S., the company couldn't crank up production at its Ohio plant because it couldn't find enough workers to hire.
1: American workers, if they are even available, don't want to work in factories or farms. So we are moving across the border into Mexico. We just opened up our first factory in Juarez, Mexico, and we did it in the record time.
5: MGA isn't alone in increasing production in Mexico, and it's a trend that is only getting started, according to Jason Tolliver from real estate firm Cushman & Wakefield. Cost. a couple of things that made that more expensive first just the supply chain disruption so whether it's a pandemic or whether it's everything related to sustainability and and, and, and natural disasters or anything so the cost transportation costs have gone up and are less reliable but labor has also gone up and how are companies looking at these problems of higher labor costs in china and the risks of sending their goods across the pacific ocean to the u.s we see Reliable energy, I don't have as good an infrastructure, I don't have that, that it's harder to transport. Yes. I can move further inland into western China, uh, where labor costs are a little bit lower, and I can take advantage of, you know, the, the infrastructure that they have, but I still have all my eggs in one basket. Yes. Or I can become more regional, shorten the supply chain, come back to the Americas, manufacture in Mexico at a lower wage rate, and then push into the U.S. And that's really what's drawing people Mexico didn't become a magnet for foreign factories by accident. The country started pushing for manufacturing investment back in the late 1960s with a program designed to entice factories to Mexico's northern border where the unemployment rate soared and poverty was crushing. There are now almost 6,500 of the so-called maquiladora factories throughout Mexico that employ more than 3 million workers. Since the pandemic, even more plants are popping up, particularly in Juarez. Excavators and bulldozers swarm the city, carving out foundations for industrial plants from the sandy soil of the vast Chihuahuan Desert. This one right here, this is a new build to suit for Warner Ladder to your left. Okay. It's about four hundred fifty thousand square feet, and they already have presence here. But they're bringing in lines from the U.S.
6: Okay.
5: Um, and then here to your right, this is our newest development. We're developing four buildings a total total about 700,000 square feet. That's Jesse Melendez. He's the director of real estate and new business development for Intermex, a Mexican company that was a pioneer for providing industrial space for foreign companies along the border. He's driving through Juarez, showing off the construction boom that has taken hold here. Industrial real estate is tight in this city. 98% of space has been leased, and price per square foot has jumped more than 20% from a year earlier. But a lot will depend on how the economy performs in the U.S., where Mexico sells about 80% of its exports.
6: We're seeing more
5: U.S. companies that are in Asia coming to Mexico and not the U.S. So instead of saying reshoring U.S., it's more like reshoring North America. One of the Mexican factory workers helping to make this possible is Efrain Gonzalez. The 49-year-old earns 1,800 pesos a week, or about $90 plus benefits at a plant recently built by the unit of China's Keyson Technology that makes adjustable beds. Like many workers in Juarez, Gonzalez migrated north from southern Mexico where jobs are scarce and pay is even lower.
0: I've been here in Juarez for two years. Over there in Veracruz, there's no work.
5: For Mexico, this could be the start of a prolonged period of foreign investment from companies seeking to shorten supply lines, reduce risk, and keep costs in check. Plant manager Mauricio Garcia is convinced that this is Mexico's manufacturing moment. Do you think there's going to be more manufacturing coming that um, was done in China coming to Mexico? Absolutely. Um, okay. Absolutely. In Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, I'm Thomas Black.
1: Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that?
0: Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka.
1: And I'm Skip Bronson.
0: And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way.
2: Now, whatever impact the pandemic might ultimately have on our world, it's not going to come close to the global consequences of climate change. We'll surely see more extreme weather events in the coming 12 months and government actions to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels that could affect us all. And the message from the scientists is this stuff is complicated. The forces we've unleashed are going to interact in unpredictable ways, even if we do all the right things from now on, a big if. We have a story now that teaches that lesson in a particularly powerful way from a corner of Japan you've probably never heard of. Here's Yoshiaki Nohara.
4: It's before dawn at the Japanese fish market. I'm on a remote island called Iki, off the Nagasaki coastline. In a matter of seconds, buyers snap up Japanese butterfish, yellowtail, and red snapper, all neatly placed in cases of ice. I'm overwhelmed by the vigor and speed of the auction, but every fisherman I speak to says this is nothing compared to their heyday years ago. They all cite the same culprit behind their decline, higher water temperatures due to global warming. They've all been coping with the effects of rising temperatures for years, long before Iki became the first city in Japan to declare a climate emergency
6: in 2019. The fish we used to find around here have been moving up north. We are getting fewer and fewer of them. They don't stay here for long anymore. Water temperatures have risen by about 1 degree Celsius compared with the old days. That was
4: Terutaka Okubo head of the Katsumoto Fishery Cooperative. He is 75 and has seen the wax and wane of the local fishery. Most boys he grew up with skipped high school to become fishermen, but now many leave the island in search of college and jobs. The city has now about 26,000 people, just half of its population in 1955. Climate change isn't just tomorrow's problem here in Iki. All generations living on the island see a need for action. But the hard reality is that, in isolation, their efforts to transform the island's energy supplies through renewables won't stop temperatures from rising. Neither will they provide enough jobs to stop the exodus from the island. Generating wind power could also end up being more destructive for Iki's fishing industry. Three small boats return after the sun rises, and all the best fish have been sold at market. Fishermen casually offload their catches on the concrete. They don't care whether the fish are dead or alive. They're caught, Not because they are valuable, but because they eat so much seaweed, they are disrupting the food chain in the local waters. One fish called Isuzumi, a striped brushy fish, is particularly bad and arrived in
6: droves from more tropical waters. The seaweed is all gone. That's averted me to the fact that something is critically wrong. Fish used to leave their eggs on the seaweed. All of that is over. There are no sporting grounds here anymore. I
4: approach Stomu Shinozaki, who wears a straw hat and is chatting with his friends. Shinozaki is a 53 year old local diver. His catch of urchins and abalone has dwindled as the seaweed has disappeared. His days of harvesting 70 abalone in one day are long gone. In the sixth month, ending in September of 2021, he didn't manage to find even 10 abalone. Shinozaki tells me how he can barely sustain his lifestyle anymore. Last winter, he took a construction job in the Tokyo suburbs just to make ends meet. water is completely different now. I can't tell if I'll be able to continue what I'm doing for much longer. And I can't tell my children to follow in my footsteps. Shinozaki and others let me hop on one of their boats and off we go. The water is emerald green. I see rocks at the bottom clearly. The scene is of pure beauty for tourists, I'm sure, but not for people like Shinzaki, who remember the water that used to be home to dark forests of seaweed. The city of Iki has been developing land-based wind and solar power projects to prevent temperatures from rising higher. It's now aiming for offshore wind farms to make its power generation 100% renewable by 2050, up from the current 13%. That's in line with Japan's target to go carbon neutral. By 2050, the nation is aiming to boost renewable energy like wind, solar, and hydrogen to cut its reliance on fossil fuels. Iki and other rural towns have abandoned space and natural resources to power that transition. Iki's mayor, Hirokazu Shirokawa, fully supports the government's willingness to take on climate change. People may say what's the point of this small island declaring a climate emergency But that's helped us to raise awareness about this issue. We've got to take action. Otherwise, nothing is going to change. Still, such a dramatic transformation will have a cost for local fishermen, Shirakawa says. They won't be able to carry on in the same way. Radio waves and sound from wind turbine blades will impact our fishing. I think we need the power company to guarantee some kind of compensation for our fishermen. Okubo, the head of the local fishery cooperative, says the offshore wind farm will impact the fishing grounds, even though he's not sure what the impact will be. But sticking with the status quo will only guarantee ongoing decline for fishermen.
6: It's uncharted territory for us. We don't know what's going to happen until we go with it. It's hell for us if we do it. And it's hell for us if we don't. If we just sit tight, things will keep going downhill and the population decline isn't going to stop.
4: Okubo's predicament speaks to the price that rural communities will have to pay even if we manage to meet global emissions targets, both in Japan abroad. Locals like Hisae Takeo are fearful of what the transition to renewable energy will mean for Iki and its fishing industry.
7: I'm
2: against it. Abalone and other sea creatures are very sensitive. When things like wind turbines go in the water, they will disappear.
4: Takeo is one of the area's famous female divers, who've been catching abalone and other sea creatures for generations. Turbines are only the latest threats to marine life she's witnessed in more than 50 years of diving. Tidal currents have moved, typhoons have become worse, and without the buffer of the seaweed, waves have become stronger warmer waters have meant she can stay in the water longer but there's less to catch
2: i swim here every day but the sea is dead now at the bottom of the sea it really feels like
7: death
4: For Bloomberg News, I'm Yoshiaki Nohara.
2: Sorry, not a happy ending this week for Stephanomics. We'll try to do better next time. But for good and bad news about the global economy, do follow at Economics on Twitter and rate this podcast, especially if you like it. This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksson, And Yoshi's story from Japan was edited by Paul Jackson. Special thanks also to Chester Dawson, Yoshito Okubo, Tsuyoshi Enajima, Takaki Iwabu, Go Onomitsu, Yuko Takeo and Lucy Meekin. Mike Sasso is executive producer of Stephanomics. And the head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy.
0: Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka.
1: And I'm Skip Bronson.
0: And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies?